Welcome back to Women of EV Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I'm her spicy co-host, Kathleen Smith, a.k.a. Kiki Planet. <laughs> I thought I may have hit that a little bit too soon there, Kathleen. <laughs> I was like, oh no, is she ready? <laughs> but we are back and I'm very excited to get to our guest today, who's Dr. Norlane Thomas. And we are going to talk about political rhetoric and Norlane. I mean, welcome, but I also have to say, let's jump into, because you were starting to tell us where your PhD studies really come into our topic today. Yeah, hi, it's great to be here. Um, I have a PhD in marketing, consumer behavior, and consumer behavior is the psychology side of marketing. It's why people make the choices they do. And so it has a lot to do with persuasion and how media and images, colors, repetition of words can change the way people think, make them make different choices than they would otherwise. So then there's a, uh, there's a psychology aspect to that as well? Absolutely, yes. Yes, took a great many graduate level site courses. <laughs> <laughs> and this is something that I, I don't know, maybe I've said before, is that when I took my studies, my major was sociology, but my minor was in philosophy. And the majority of my classmates all went with psych. But once I started looking at politics, once I got involved in politics, I'm like, oh, damn, I should have I should have taken more psych. <laughs> really want to understand what's going on here like from from that psychological level because you know it has impact Absolutely. right <laughs> but yeah let's talk about how it has impact so when I was first looking at you know doing some prep for this show I was googling political rhetoric and holy has it ever made a lot of headlines in 2022 <laughs> which tells us obviously that people are asking questions now, right? About like, what is the impact of what we're saying? What is the impact of what other people are saying? I've heard people say that this is an area of research that um, conservative parties have spent time and money and resources getting that information. And I mean, if you look around, I think they, I think you could say that's money well spent. But that's, I mean, that's what we're wanting to talk about, right? Unfortunately. <laughs> well, you know, the, yes, they have spent a lot of money. They have a lot of resources that are just focused on convincing people to think differently, to make choices that they might otherwise not make. And uh, they do it in a lot of ways. They do it through repetition of words and statements. You tell a person a thing a hundred times and they're going to believe it, even if it's completely wildly untrue, because it just, it gets embedded in their subconscious. Um, that's not a new strategy that's been used by kind of sketchy leaders for a very long time. Um, they change also the way we think about certain words and, and something that I've noticed in recent years probably going back at least as far as when Harper was PM is things like talking about elites and academics as though they're somehow the enemy mm -hmm. experts 
you know, they try to make people feel like experts are somehow shady and not to be trusted. And that's sort of counterintuitive to anybody who actually, you know, thinks hard about it. Uh, <laughs> somebody's put in tens of thousands of hours working on a particular field, they're going to know a lot about it. They're going to know practically everything about it, that, mm -hmm. you know, more than almost anybody else. And just to say that, <laughs> and yeah, and to say that they're, they don't know what they're talking about or their opinion, but their, their view is less important or uh, less significant than the opinion of Joe on the bus is yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah. And but can we, perhaps what we should do is uh, just take a brief moment to discuss the word rhetoric itself, because mm. although it's a commonly used word, I think there's a lot of people who don't really understand what the word means, or at least from what I've seen online, there's a lot of people <laughs> who don't understand what the word means. Well, I don't have a description of the word pulled up in front of me. I would say, though, that <laughs> rhetoric is a set of statements and ideas that are sort of bundled together to convey a message or a feeling. Lots of times we see that the political messaging, especially from the right, is much more feeling-based than fact-based. Mm -hmm. So it is a, a bundle of words and messages, and sometimes that can include things like images and colors that keeps a message, a narrative on track and keeps being repeated and repeated and repeated until it gets embedded in people's minds. And it's a, I would, I would suggest it's a tool in uh, the political arsenal of all major parties really. Mm -hmm. And, and religions as well. Yeah, I think absolutely. a lot of what we're seeing in uh, politics and ideology right now is actually something religion's been doing for centuries, right? Mm -hmm. We're just seeing uh, political parties understand the value of that as a, as a political weapon and use it to further their own messaging uh, or narrative. You think about it, rhetoric and rhetorical are very closely related words. Something that's rhetorical is something that is obvious. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, rhetorical question, you you're, don't expect an answer because the answer is obvious to everybody that's hearing the question. Rhetoric is a bunch of stuff that somebody would like to be obvious to everyone. Yeah. And the way that I, so I was, I was nodding while you were, uh, while you were trying to, dis, or sorry, while you were trying to describe it without the, the definition in front of you. And so, yeah, you, you've got it. It's, um, the art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing, especially the use of figures of speech and other compositional techniques. So like you said, the color and, you know, different fonts and things like that, they, they give people certain feelings, right? Based on how they've been used in the past. Yeah. I mean, and it's, <clears throat> it's interesting because it's not always the same from one culture to another because different colors mean different things in different cultures. Right, but uh, we find that the use of red and black and really strong, you know, dark yellow and that sort of thing has carries some sort of threatening tone to it, mm -hmm. and so that gets used quite a bit if a political party is trying to paint the other party as bad. 
evil, a menace. Yeah, which which seems to be how parties campaign these days, as uh, opposed to presenting good ideas and plans and policy, is it not? And I think we're seeing that more and more. It's always about, well, vote for us because the other guys are really bad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, there was something that's come up in one of my group chats and I have, you know, we've got someone who's really, really staunchly conservative and someone who's really, really staunchly NDP. And we were talking one day about how conservatives will say things like, you'll never agree with a party 100%, right? And that it's okay to not agree with a party 100%. But I mean, the flip side of that is, however, these things you don't like, we're doing them anyway. (laughs) There's there's that part. But we were kind of talking about how um, that's, it's slightly different on the left, where they they don't really give you an opportunity to disagree as much with what the party is saying, right? They want you to agree with more with all of it because those are, those are the principles. That's why you're here. But, you know, like I said, the, the, on the right, they give you like this, this little out of being able to say, oh, well, I don't agree with all of it, but I agree with most of it. And that's okay for their voters. Right. But they have an out of being able to say that, whereas there's a little more um, and not with all, but with some parties on the left where they're more stringent. And of course, you have to believe all of these things. These are these are tenets. Yeah. But, you know, I think the parties on the right, the conservatives tend to do this thing where they've got a lot of um, legacy conservative members. Mm. They've got a lot of people who are not who are conservatives. For Joe Clark and Mulroney and maybe haven't really figured out how different this mm-hmm. and so I hear people say well I vote conservative I mean I've got nothing against you know brown people or the gays but I I like a strong fiscal manager mm-hmm. and you've got to say to them well look it's a package deal you know right. if you vote for them then you're going to get programs that are not good for immigrants, that are not good for the LGBTQ community and, and women and, you know, other minorities. And you can't absolve yourself of that by saying, well, you know, I'm just a fiscal conservative. Right. Because it is a package deal. It, you know, you can't pick and choose. But then on the other hand too, I think we have to understand that, uh, for for those on the left, um, seeking to understand those legacy conservative voters it means not immediately accusing them of being homophobic or racist if you are actually serious about reaching out to them and having conversations that might help them to understand it's a package deal. Right. And the rhetoric we see coming from the left right now is, you know, if if you vote conservative, you're racist. If you vote conservative, conservative, you're homophobic. And I I don't think that's doing much to uh, to incite conversations that we need to have or to bring people out of that almost religious like devotion to ideology either 
cat. Fear isn't going to endear them to the party that's projecting that on them. But that's at the same right. time, I mean, it's a clumsy way of saying, look at what this party is now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the messaging, the communications have not been good coming from the left. Um, the federal government has done a terrible job of blowing their own horn because they've done lots of good things. Mm-hmm. But who knows about them? Not that many people. Especially in Alberta. Especially in Alberta. <laughs> yeah. They could, the federal government could right now make us the richest province, not just in Canada, but the richest region on the face of the earth. And nobody here would care. No. <laughs> but I think, I think that goes back to uh, what rhetoric has accomplished in this province for conservatives for decades now. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and it is, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not even just, you know, embedded in, in the psyche of individuals, it's generational. Like, like yeah. it, it's amazing mm-hmm. what they've been able to do with, and with un- that. And unfortunately, as we see um, adherence to political ideology become a form of, uh, a, it's a form of religiosity, really, the more we see that and the more we see people become entrenched in their ideology and wrap themselves in cloaks of self-righteousness simply for who they vote for Mm -hmm. right we see that constantly now i'm a better person because i vote for this party i'm a better person than you are it's it's become so much like different religious sects battling each other while they're all ignoring that they're all being fed garbage in one form or another, <laughs> you know? So I, I guess uh, as someone who is spending more time these days reading social media and doing more listening when I'm on social media, I'm wondering how do we step back from the rhetoric? How do we identify it? And then how do we step back from it? You know, it's, it's interesting that, um, a lot of what politicians say doesn't get very well fact-checked. And that's true across the board, although I think if, well, in, in Alberta, if an NDP politician says something, there's going to be some media scurrying to figure out what's wrong with it and what they mm-hmm. can attack. And the same federally is true of the federal government. You know, there's, there's going to be a few that are going to go, wait, wait, wait. <clears throat> this is wrong or that's wrong or they got this they mispronounced a word or, or something <laughs> um, but you don't seem to get quite that much fact checking going on <clears throat> for the right and I've actually had conversations with journalists about this who say well our job is to hold the government's feet to the fire and I counter with well actually I think your job is to keep the public informed And so the public needs to know what all the parties are doing and what they're like so that they can make an educated decision come election time. You can't just cover the misdeeds of the government. You have to spread it around, you know, look at everybody. That's actually a very good point because I, I was about to counter when you started with, well, it's not really the job of the media to fact check. But if the media's approach to this is, well, we're, we're only going to fact check the government, 
which is what we do see on the federal level. Uh, provincially, it's kind of hit and miss, but I think that's really the result of Alberta being a unique ideological landscape anyways. But if our press really is only fact-checking the government, then that's kind of a, a one-sided presentation of what's happening, is it not? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if if conservative politicians can say, oh, the government is going to put a tax on your trucks, and the reporter just goes, uh, CPCMP, blah, 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 said that the liberals are going to put a tax on your trucks and just leaves it there, mm-hmm. then the public is going to think, oh, dear, they're going to put a tax on our trucks. And so there needs to be that kind of context put in that explains that, well, a tax on trucks was one of the items in this panel that submitted a report to the government, and at no point has the government actually discussed putting a tax on trucks. That's where it came from, Mm -hmm. but there's no indication that this statement is actually true. And they're not doing that. Well, no, and I would suppose it becomes even more problematic when we're we're facing um, a media landscape that is first off, controlled by a couple conglomerates, and secondly, is now divided into conservative press, liberal press, um, I call it bullshit press, the, the, you know, bright the usual suspects, the usual, the suspects. usual suspects, there's a couple of them I won't even mention, because <laughs> they don't deserve their names passing through my lips. <laughs> Um, but I, I suppose it becomes even more problematic to get at what is truth, what is fact, and separate it from fiction if even our our media cannot decide or if the media itself is trying to um, spin a narrative that benefits themselves what, in whatever way that looks like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. I've been following this uh, recent thing, a doctor in Ontario, and apparently she's very high profile there. She's like Dr. Vipond here. Okay. You know, she's she's an activist for public health measures. She's oh, run that, clinics on the weekends and, yeah. you know, been very, very active for her patients and for the public. And she was invited onto the agenda where there were two men who just argued with her and then afterwards several right-wing pundits piled on her on twitter and then she started getting death threats yeah yeah i've been following Mm -hmm. that story as well she was wearing a mask on the agenda Mm -hmm. she wore a uh, a face mask and i believe it was brian lilly who was the first to jump on her was it brian fury anthony anthony Okay, I I caught it when Brian Lilly decided Mm. to chime in and uh, they they called her a nutter. They said Mm -hmm. she was crazy because she's sitting alone in a room with a a mask on uh, doing an interview. She, after that aired, tried to explain to people, yeah, I'm I'm doing this in between seeing patients. COVID yeah, is she was airborne. In her, she was in her off, like her office that she's examining patients in. Yeah, yeah you can right. see it behind her. 
yeah. And COVID is airborne. And just because one of my patients leaves the room doesn't mean that the virus goes with them if we've been in that enclosed space. And it, that's just science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just science, people. But the attacks that she's been subjected to over the last couple of days, horrible voicemails. She posted a, vo- a, voicema- a voicemail today that was a death threat. Horrible voicemails she's been getting and emails and uh, attacks online. And that is the direct result of conservative media pundits and self-identified journalists attacking her publicly for wearing a mask in her examination room. Mm-hmm. And, and that was Dr. Neely Kaplan Murph. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And after they started posting the clip, they selected a clip. They can all posted the same clip. I think there's Jen Gerson and there was Anthony Fury and there was Brian Lilly and probably some others. And after that, I mean, I, I don't know the, if the agenda is even, if you can watch it here in Alberta or if it's just in Ontario. Yeah, because it's TVO programming. Yeah, exactly. So she's getting death threats from Saskatchewan. Yeah. You know, it almost feels like she was set up for this. It's, I don't know. It's it's really bad. I've I've heard her voicemails and stuff, and they're terrible. Like the way I'm actually watching the clip right now because I had to look up. I wanted to have her name for whatever reason that someone was choosing to wear a mask. I would love it if it was more commonplace because it seems to me like this has kind of gone out the window. And I mean, for some people, they always, you know, would say stupid shit about things they had no idea about. That was just them, but it seems like there's more that'll do it now. And I just, I wish that people could look at it and say, I don't understand what's going on in there. I'm not going to actually comment on that because like you said, Kathleen, when it came out, when she explained, you know, I I did this interview in between patients during my work day in Mm -hmm. my office where I see patients, I almost feel like the number of people that maybe would have shut up. Are, is a lot higher had they known that. But again, it comes back to this. I'm going to comment on this situation. I don't understand. <laughs> I do not have all the information on, but this, and this does seem to be something, and especially as we have, for whatever reason, discovered masks seem to be super triggering to some people that don't, I guess, respect why they're being used in the first place. But I think that goes back to the rhetoric that uh, was that surrounded masking right from the start. We can talk a lot about it, you know, about masking and the backlash to masking. But I, I think that's really just a sign of how deeply embedded in our own trenches we've all become. When we also- that. That, you know, I and Deirdre, we've talked about this on the podcast before that what I see a lot of online that I find uh, quite disturbing is, is people attacking for the sake of attack to prove to their followers how righteous they are, not to change anything for the better, Mm. not to engage people in conversations that we all really need to be having right now. But it's more about 
proving to our clans, and I mean that in the family way, proving to our respective clans how righteous we are, trying to prove that we're out here doing the work, but attacking other people and using, repeating this rhetoric, uh, engaging and participating in these uh, false narratives, that's not accomplishing anything. We're not doing the work by fighting other people online, right? So I, I think a lot of that reaction too is about people trying to prove something to themselves and to their little isolated groups. That's just my take anyway. There's, there's certainly some of that, but a lot of it seems to be really directed towards silencing. People. Yeah. Silencing voices they disagree with, mm-hmm. and which is extremely anti-democratic. But you see it, I mean, you've been seeing it for years. You post something and a bunch of people you've never heard of before will show up and start screaming at you. Yeah. Um, and that's just to make you be quiet. You know, yeah. it's. Oh, I think there's that aspect. There's the, there's attempts to silence, but I think there's also uh, a specific faction who are constantly looking for someone to attack. They feed mm-hmm. off it. Hey, I, for our, our listeners, we are recording this podcast about 24 hours after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Mm-hmm. I only bring that up because it does sort of You've play a role in, in what we're discussing. Well, I think what I was most surprised about is I made a point yesterday of, of not expressing my personal feelings about the death of the Queen. Same. I, I shared the news about her death. I shared some information about what happens now with things like Court of Queen's Bench, mm-hmm. uh, Queen's Council, etc. And I, I said nothing more than that on Twitter. And I was, I was inundated with direct messages, private messages, text messages from people who want to, wanted to know, when am I going to say this? When am I going to say that? Why haven't I said anything about this? All of it related to uh, the death of the queen. And it, it was a bit of an eye-opening experience for me because every DM I received, every text message I received was expecting me to say something different. And sometimes what one person wanted me to say was in direct contradiction to what another person wanted me to say. And that's when I realized they don't really want to hear what I have to say. Because they haven't asked me my thoughts. They want to know why I haven't said what they said. They want to know why I haven't repeated what this other person said. And they're, they're not looking for my opinion because in, in the big scheme of things, my opinion's worthless. My opinion on the death of the queen means nothing. But what they want is a bad take. They want a bad take posted publicly so they can beat me up for it or they want a hot take posted publicly so they can retweet it and say see I agree so I must be a good person but there's no real conversation happening there there's no real dialogue uh, about the historic event it's who's got the worst take who's got the best take and who can we make the victim du jour to prove our own ideological purity And I worry that the rhetoric and it's not like it's not like we're watching rhetoric decline either. No, 
right? It's not getting better out there, kids. But I worry that uh, there's so much rhetoric now and so little real conversation and so little room for nuanced conversation that how do we how do we even begin to have conversations when none of us are willing to get past the rhetoric? That's a crazy, interesting question. I wish there was an easy answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I've noticed one thing that it seems like people's civics knowledge in Canada has deteriorated. Exponentially. Yes. And I've written a couple of notes to the federal government suggesting that, you know, it might be good to do some kind of a campaign, a nonpartisan campaign, just explaining to people what is the role of the governor general? What is the role of the lieutenant governor? Who appoints mm -hmm. them? How are they appointed? How are judges appointed? What are the different jurisdictional properties or, or powers of the different levels of government? You know, these are things people don't know. People, so many people don't seem to understand. We don't have a Second Amendment. We don't have a Fifth Amendment. <laughs> it blows my mind. Uh, <laughs> free speech. What about my free speech? In oh, yeah. you're in Canada, yeah. so <laughs> yeah. yeah, there yeah, does I, that that permeation of American. Um, and I and it, it is right. It's been interesting. What's going on in the States has been very interesting. It's been kind of scandal after scandal. There's been a lot of things that have taken Canadian attention. Um, and it is hard to see how many people will say that about their free speech and, and so on. And, and you just, I mean, the first thing is you think, are they even Canadian? Right. And then you check their bio and yeah, they live in, you know, Ontario or whatever. And you're just like, okay. Right. And like, because it has maybe just become such a, like, like the media has been kind of overwhelming since 2015, 15, 16. That's when things start to get pretty exciting that, that Canadians really started to pay attention to what was going on down there. And, and it has, it has taken over so much, yet I remember a lot more about my, like, I remember a lot more stuff about my Amer American history that I learned in school than I really do about Canadian history. Canada so, has a, a great tradition of sort of downplaying our own talents and history and so on. I mean, it's like you have to leave Canada to get famous in the entertainment business and, mm -hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> Same applies for our history. We're always looking around at everybody else's history and food and so on. But, uh, you know, we really need to to bring the focus back yeah. to Canada. Yeah. I mean, I maintain that what this country needs is a Canadian version of the West Wing. <gasps> See, and I would love that. Because the West Wing, <laughs> the West Wing actually did more to educate an American populace on uh, how their government works, the the role of specific big players in the government than any public education ever did. People well, learned it, so much from that show. And I, I still maintain that if we had a, a Canadian version of that called The Hill, 
or something, it would be, you know, good. Well, we just need a cheap CanCon version of the West Wing. <laughs> the West Wing did a lot to educate Canadians yes. about American yeah. politics, which is, I think, part of why people seem to be so confused about actually how our <laughs> government works. That's possible, too. And like we so, is, we are close, but we're not the same. Yeah, the thank same. goodness. Thank goodness. We're, we're distant cousins. I think the last couple of years have made me extremely appreciative of the Westminster parliamentary system, frankly, especially being, you know, watching, uh, watching some conservatives in the United States who whose asses should be hitting the curb and their own party can't get rid of them. It's thank goodness up here in Canada parties have the power to say get the hell out you're an embarrassment right because they they simply don't have that in the united states and i think that's part of the reason why the rhetoric has been so amped up there why it's getting worse and worse and worse there's no boundaries there's no boundaries for you know you've you've crossed a line into indecency you've you've disregarded integrity and dignity. There's no boundaries there anymore. I do worry about that based on what we've seen, uh, both in the, the federal CPC leadership campaign, as well as what's happening here provincially with the UCP leadership race. I do, I do worry that uh, more of that is being embraced by Canadian politicians unfortunately, where we're just dissolving those lines. How can the average person identify what they're reading as rhetoric? Uh, what are some red flags that people should watch for? Um, well, the very, very obvious ones are things like spelling errors, poor grammar. You're not likely to get those from a reputable news source. Uh, if they start making references to things that are clearly not Canadian, mm-hmm. it's maybe something coming from outside our borders. Do the fact checking. I mean, take some notes about the things they're talking about and spend some time with Google. Look stuff up. Check other news sources. You know, yeah. if you're reading something in uh, global, well, see if uh, the BBC or um, the Washington CTV. Post. Yep. or CBC or, you know, other stations have a little different take on what's going on. Read multiple stories from different sources and, and do some research. You know, you can, and I hate that word now because right? everybody research. says do your research. I know, I know that's terrible. But, um, no, I, you know, actually look up the text. If somebody's complaining about a bill, look up the text. Mm-hmm. Go to articles put together by uh, law associations because they usually comment in their journals on every new bit of legislation. Mm-hmm. And you'll get a quite different take than you'll get from politicians on either side right? or from the news media. Yeah. And yeah, they I've, I've stumbled upon those once in a while, and, and they're a very interesting read because they, they do it very specifically from a legal lens mm-hmm. of whether or not this is actually, like, where the problem with this legislation might lie. And it, 
uh, I hate to use this word now uh, or this phrase, but they're plain language. Right? They they're not legally really right. They're yeah. accessible. Yeah. They're written I, in accessible language. I actually think that's plain language. I, I actually think when that term isn't misused, it's important. It is. It's important yeah. that we, uh, especially in an era where academics are consistently demeaned and diminished, when the people who have the education and the knowledge and the experience that can be shared with us are beat up on, so to speak. I think it's really important that when we're trying to reach out to others, we do use accessible language. I like that term accessible. over plain language, accessible language. I like accessible that language. It's yeah. very important. And, you know, I was shocked to learn that, first of all, more than 50% of Americans read at less than a grade six level. So I dug in and found that not quite 50% of Canadians read at lower than a grade six level. That is an absolutely disappointing statistic. It yes. is. And I did read once, um, it, it, was a, it was about that, that lower reading level. And basically they were saying, it's not like riding a bike you actually have to continue to develop your reading comprehension skills and mm -hmm. people who may leave high school or even um, college or university and actually stop exercising that will lose that skill. So that made me feel a little bit better about it because it's not that we're not an educated society. We are, you know, obviously much more of an educated society than what, what America is. However, if you choose not to flex that muscle after you've learned those skills, apparently they will, they will go away. So they deteriorate. Yeah. Wasn't that, like so, your, isn't that thrilling? Just Keep like reading. language skills. Just like language skills. If you, you know, don't speak a language that you learned as a child, you lose vocabulary. Yeah. And it's also not something that you can't get back. I avoided current affairs for many years because my parents always watched the news when I was growing up and it was, you know, this many murders in Calgary this week and, or this more or last night. Like, it was just like, I'm like, how, why would you start your day with that is, is what I always felt. So as soon as I moved out on my own, I was like, I'm not having a television. I don't need one. I refuse to watch anything. And so I was living in um, Red Deer, which was a larger center than where I grew up. And I got a library card and I read and then my grandmother was like, you have to have a TV. Like, no, I'm like, no. I, I, and so I got a TV and, but, I've, but I still always liked to read. Actually, before Twitter, pre-Twitter, I read all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm still reading all the time. I'm just reading them in bits, which is actually a little, it is concerning me because I'm wondering, can I actually sit down with, you know, a book that is this thick now and stick with it? I'm not sure. But I think that's actually a good point, and it it connects to what Norlene was saying earlier about rhetoric, and that's that uh, there's we're spending so much time online as a society now, and it, at least um, and it is a tiny faction in the big scheme of things, but a, a tiny faction of people are extremely politically engaged 
online. Unfortunately, that's led to a lot of repetition of rhetoric from whatever team uh, we feel we're cheering for, Mm -hmm. right? And I see it happening across the political spectrum, everywhere, where a lot of what we're seeing online is just players repeating what the coach has said. (laughs) You know, that's that's why I, I really encourage people to take breaks from their online engagement. Look, I, I've been on Twitter since, I don't know, I think about 2009. I've been online since, I think, 1994. I was an early adopter. I had the dial-up internet connection and everything. And online, so and even social media used to be geek land. It was Nerdville, you know, it was just for us computer savvy nerds Mm -hmm. over the last few years. And especially since uh, since Trump, since he came barreling into everyone's life, I think we've really seen an influx of people onto social media who are not there for discussion or engagement yeah they're they are there to uh, fight for their turn army yes and that's why i really encourage people sometimes you've got to close your twitter app you've got to close your facebook app you've got to close your reddit app and go out and talk to people in the real world because you you spend so much time away from actual society and you're in this bubble online that just as we were talking about how you can you can lose a lot of the skill of reading, you lose your ability to communicate with people who may not think exactly like you. You lose your ability to converse with them. You, you lose your ability to consider different ideas because we're all existing in these echo chambers. We're all existing in our own little bubbles where everyone thinks exactly like we do. And so we think that's the way it is out there too. So Norlene, the the psychological aspect of rhetoric, how do you think that's affecting us as a society as a whole? How is that affecting culture offline? Well, it was an interesting study and I don't have the citation in front of me, but It was a longitudinal study and it looked at a lot of people over about 25 years and looked at different things about their attitudes. And and one of the things that it studied was what media they consumed. And this was done probably in the 80s, 70s and 80s. So it's not, doesn't really encapsulate internet influence. Mm. But it's very interesting because it found that the people who had a pretty steady diet of like police procedurals and those types of shows Mm -hmm. tended over the years to develop a feeling that the world was a lot more dangerous than it really is. Mm -hmm. So it actually got into their heads and convinced them, you know, that they were muggers behind every bush and that the world was a very dangerous place. Mm-hmm. And so I see this coming out a lot in the things that various politicians are saying. 
um, that try to push one worldview or another. So you have people on the right talking about how we have astronomical inflation. Well, I remember when it was 18%. Mm-hmm. And someone put out a someone put out a graph today and said, you know, guys, we'll be fine. Inflation isn't as bad as it was under Harper. <laughs> yeah, like, oh. exactly. Exactly. So people and because the time frame used to be you watch the show and then you had to wait a week and watch the next one. And you might have other shows in between. Right. But right now we're bombarded. There's this fire hose of disinformation coming at us all the time. And I think it's really impacting how people view the world. I think it's really having quite a negative impact on a lot of people. Um, You know, people go into the store and they start freaking out over the price of plums. Well, you know, (laughs) know, plums are not in season. Exactly. (laughs) Non-seasonal goods have always been expensive, people. This isn't a new thing. Don't go Dr. Oz on us now. But yes, people have become convinced because, as I said right at the beginning, you say something enough time and some people will believe it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's happening and it's happening faster and faster. And this is why we really, really need a strong uh, fourth estate. We need good journalists. We need... People who can fact check, people who can lay things out the way they actually are and just do a reality check over and over for people because it's just how do you how do you pick out what's real and what isn't? And I fear there's so much disinformation now, so much rhetoric, so much false narrative that we've reached the point where people really don't know who to trust or who to believe anymore. And we can't even blame them for that. I, we're all, it's almost like we're all existing in a suspended reality now, right? Well, what is, what is reality? What is the reality of our society? What is the reality of our politics? No one can even identify what is real anymore because so many people in positions of power are are pushing so much disinformation that no one no one knows who to trust anymore and i don't even think we can blame people for that and i think no. they were saying not too long ago that people were starting to tune out politics again because it was yeah. so negative and and so average people will like they they do other things right and Granted, I mean, I pay a lot of attention, right? Like there were days when I'd be like, you know, I'm overwhelmed, but am I overwhelmed because I pay too much attention or am I overwhelmed because, because that's the goal? Mm-hmm.